You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, Asbury. It's so good to see you today. Good to be with you. I want to open with a question. How many days did Jesus spend in his public ministry, phase of his ministry's life? How many days in Christ's public ministry? We often throw out uh, three years, but how many days was that? Well, we don't know for sure, but it's somewhere no less than 1,095 days and no more than 1,316 days. So let's just average it and say roughly 1,200 days Jesus spent in his public ministry. That's between the time that he uh, begins his first miracle all the way through to his entrance into Jerusalem for the Holy Week. We call it his public ministry. Now, given, we'll say, 1,200 days, how many days of Christ's ministry are found in the New Testament? That's my real question for you. How many days do you think, if you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and count in all the days in which Christ is recorded, his ministry comes to us, how many days are delivered to us in Scripture out of the 1,200? And the answer is around 50. Think about that. Here's someone that was in public ministry between 1,100 and 1,300 days. And 50 of them are given to us in the New Testament. Now, what does that mean? Why is that important? It's important because it reminds us that the gospel writers are selecting from a lot of things they could have shared with you because they want you to share certain things which are exceedingly important for you to understand who Jesus Christ is. We know that what I'm saying is true because John himself remarks on this on the very last verse in John's gospel. If you look over there, you can see John concludes his gospel by saying, you know, Jesus did so many other things. If I told you everything Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain the books that could be written. So what that tells us is that the gospel writers that comes to us, that when they give you an account, it's there for a reason. It's there because they said, you know what, I could tell this, 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 and this, but I want to tell you that one because that one is going to be helping to deliver something really important to you about who Christ is. So when we come to our text today, by the way, this particular passage is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're reading the, the Mark and text today. But it's found in three of the Gospels. Why is it that this particular account is found in three of the Gospels. It's almost, like, it's almost like saying, you know, you really can't understand Jesus until you know this passage. It's almost like that, because three out of the four say, I'm going to choose that. And part of the reason, and we, we don't know the reason fully, but maybe we'll get a little glimpse of it today, because part of the reason is who is in the story. Because two lives, two very different lives, intersect on this day in the public ministry of Jesus. And that is a remarkable thing in light of who they are. The first person is a person named Jairus. We have his name, that's important. And Jairus, we find the text, is a very, very important, influential, powerful person. In fact, the Bible says 
The word that's used in the English there, it says he's a synagogue ruler. Uh, it's actually said four times in the passage. He's a synagogue ruler. And what that means to us and should tell you, he's not simply a rabbi. He is like the ruler. He is a person who oversees uh, large parts of the, the public ministry of Judaism in that region. So he's a person that was considered to be famous, important, you know, clouds, crowds separated when he came through. This person had, you know, power, presence, privilege, position. He had all the things people longed for in the ancient world. He's the kind of person, Jairus is, where when you saw him, you go home that night and say to your, you know, your, your spouse, you'd say, hey, you know, guess who I saw today? Right, this is that kind of person. He's name, rank, biography, all the things people wanted he had. Now you contrast that with the other person in the story, this woman. And in every way, this woman is on the exact opposite end of the spectrum that's given to us. Because she, we don't even have her name. Right? Her name is not known. She's, she's not a known person. She, uh, in, the, in the ancient world in general, women were regarded with less, uh, had less authority or uh, and, and kind of status that men, men had. She, we're told also that she was uh, unclean. She had an issue of blood. Now, you have to understand that as an issue of blood, Leviticus said, if this woman uh, has an issue of blood that will not stop, she cannot go into the temple. Okay, you get that? That means she has no access to God, temple, priest, or healing. She can't go talk to the priest. She can't go into the temple. She can't offer a sacrifice. She can't go to the altar. All the things that kind of constitute what's it mean to know God and walk with God and believe God and participate in the worship of the people of God, she is shut out from that. So we have the term, you know, in, in English, someone who's a shut-in, someone who can't get out, but this is not a shut-in. She's a shut-out. She's been shut out from all the ways people would mediate God, temple, priest, and healing. So here's Jairus, the ultimate insider, a synagogue ruler, told four times. He's that, that's his title. More than any other title, he's told that in this text. And then this woman who's a nobody, shut out from God's presence. And these people are, and in some ways you might say, that the whole human race is present in these two people, they represent the spectrum, the two ends of the parentheses, and all of us and the whole world is in this spectrum, and these two cross in the public ministry of Jesus. Now, there are two ways that these people are alike, and this is why it's so important. This is why it becomes important in the ministry of Jesus. First of all, both of them, despite his great status, Jairus, synagogue ruler, all that, he has a 12-year-old story. We're told he has a 12-year-old girl who's been suffering, who's been ill. We don't know the nature of her illness, but her, this has been a traumatic thing for him, as I imagine, and it's all culminated to the point that she is at the point of death. So this has been a 12-year-old story unfolding in the life of Jairus and his family, and all of his wealth and position and power and privilege cannot change that. In the same way, this woman, we're told in the text, has been bleeding for how many years? Do y'all talk? Ah, yes. You're alive. Twelve years, right? So she's been bleeding for twelve years. 
So here you have these two 12-year-old stories of two people that will never have had met, met each other. And they, these two 12-year-old stories meet on this day in the life and public ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to see the importance of this story. So this woman, uh, put yourself in her shoes. Uh, the crowd is not going to open the way for her like the Red Sea. You know, she's not going to get any big opening. So she has to think, how can I come in contact with Jesus. Her only hope is Jesus. We come now to the second reason why these two are alike. Despite their differences, both of these people fall down at the feet of Jesus. You'll see how, how this kind of ruler named Jairus, he, in verse uh, 22, he fell at his feet. And later we'll see this woman falling at his feet. The whole world is called to fall at the feet of Jesus. Amen? So here they are. Uh, this woman uh, wants to come in contact with Jesus, but she has no access to him. So she is a clever, uh, smart woman, and she determines how she can position herself so that as Jesus passes by, she can reach out and she thinks to herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, then I'll be made whole. Now, Jesus is going by that way. They're on their way to Jairus' house. This is the, you know, the appointment for the day. Souls aren't interested in any interruptions. There's a big crowd there, we're told. And right as Jesus passes by, Jesus is passing by this way. She reaches out and she just touches, not even him, just the hem or the edge of his garment. Now at this point, we must push the pause button. At that point, right as she touches his garment, let's push the pause button and step back and say, okay, what what, what is the expectation? What could happen in this situation? What are the options? Like if you're a Jewish person, first century, and you say, okay, this person is going to reach out and touch the hem of this rabbi walking by, what would happen? What could happen? Well, in this case, there's only one possible action, only one possible scenario. This is why this woman is so remarkable, because from everything we know about Judaism, only one possible outcome and that is that she would simply, by touching him, make him unclean. That's why they had all these uncleanness laws. In other words, if you were ritually unclean, when this in her case with blood, and you touched a clean man, in this case a ritually clean rabbi, you touch him, you will make him unclean. That's the only option. Haggai 2 really lays this out. He said, you know, if you come in the temple and you know, you're ritually clean, but you rush up against someone unclean, what happens? You don't make them clean. They become, you catch their uncleanliness. If, uh, you know, you are uh, and, and uh, have been exposed to a dead body or you're bleeding and you come up and you kneel down at the consecrated altar itself, does it make you clean? No, you make the altar unclean. That's the only way it works. Clean makes Clean, unclean, unclean makes clean, unclean. It, there's no other option. So the only possibility that we know of at this point in human history is when she touches him, she will make Jesus unclean. But, and here's the great, you know, this is the great but of the gospel. But something different is at work in Jesus. And that has importance for every single person in this room. There's something altogether different at work in Jesus Christ. That's why they're proclaiming this. Because in Jesus, he is going to be reversing things. 
So later, early on in Mark's gospel, Jesus touched the leper. Again, the same expectation. The only possible mind they could think of, he would catch leprosy. But Jesus didn't catch leprosy, did he? Instead, the leper caught Jesus' health. He caught Jesus' wholeness. You see, Jesus reversed the tide of contagion. And in this text later on, we'll see how he reverses death itself is reversed with this little 12-year-old girl who dies. So Jesus is in the process. I mean, in some way, this woman is uh, shut out from, you know, God, temple, priest, and healing. But Jesus is like a mobile temple. You know, he is the presence of God on the move in the world. He's, he's the mobile temple. And, and, and by, you know, she couldn't go to the temple, but praise God, the temple was coming to her. And that's what happens on this day. And she touches him. And the minute she touches him, Jesus stops. And Jesus says in the text, who touched me? And the disciples' reaction is quite predictable. And we, in Mark's gospel, we're not told who said it, but Luke tells us that, in fact, it was Peter, predictably. Lord, what do you mean, who touched me? Can't you see the crowd? This is like going into, you know, a, a game, you know, or something, you know, and everybody's pushing and shoving. Can you imagine you're, you're going into a game down in Lexington, and somebody, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get to the turnstile, and someone turns and says, hey, who touched me? He's like, what do you mean, who touched me? Everybody's touching you. What, you're crazy. Jesus said, who touched me? They, they said, no, 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 Lord, what are you talking about? He says, no, someone, I felt power go out from me. So they turn around, and of course, there she is, and she confesses the whole story. And Jesus talks to her. In fact, Jesus addresses her in the text, and, and he gives her this title. You know, when I told you how she had no title, position, power, and all that. Jesus gives her the greatest title you could ever be given. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in the peace of God. Isn't that wonderful? He gives her that great title, daughter, son. You know, Jesus, unlike the disciples here, is the most sensitive man who ever lived. Because, see, everyone in this room has a story. It may not be a 12-year-old story. It may be a 12-year story. Some of you have things and issues, things that you're working through, things you're dealing with, and maybe a few know about it. Maybe only you know about it. But everyone in this room has a story. Your life is a story. You've been on a journey. There's things that brought you here, and there's a lot of things that come up to where you sit today in this spot. And it's really, in some ways, both comforting and in many ways terrifying to know that Jesus knows our entire story. He's the most sensitive person ever lived. He walks in our midst. He knows our stories. And he loves us with an unfathomable love. Now, you notice that when Jesus pronounces her cleanse, and we're told she felt healing, she knew immediately she'd been healed from her affliction. Her 12-year-old story had found a climax and a healing and a, and a resolution. But at that very moment, I mean, literally about that moment when she receives this healing from God and the resolution, you might say her answered prayer after 12 years, at that very moment, Jairus' daughter is going from being sick to being, to being dead. You know, God doesn't always do things on our timetable, does he? Some of you have 12-year-old stories and you wonder, and I, I've had this too, where my wife and I, 
have had prayers we're praying for, uh, some of them 12 years long, unresolved prayers, etc. And, you know, it's like, Lord, uh, have you forgotten me? Jairus is down there, uh, and Jairus' people come back and they tell him, you know, don't bother the master, his daughter is dead. The very point where she's shouting hallelujah, they're like, it's all over with. God doesn't work always on the same timetable, and his plans are different for us. In this place, he had an even greater miracle, but Jarvis doesn't know that. So their first impulse is to say, don't bother teachers, uh, it's over with. And Jesus says, no, we're going on down. They actually laugh at him because he says, she's not dead but asleep, which is a great biblical uh, theme that uh, for the Christian, death is, death is like sleep to us. It's used all through the New Testament. They go down there, and it's really interesting. They go down into the, to the room, and the little girl is laid out on the bed, and she's dead. Little 12-year-old girl. Think about the anguish of this. And they put everybody out of the room, all the way. They had wailers in those days that would wail when people died. They put them all out of the room. And there's this really intimate moment that you're invited into in the passage. Because it's just Jesus, the, the, uh, the parents, little dead girl, and then you have, you know, Peter, just, you know, you have a few of the disciples there. It's a very intimate group, and he goes over, and he takes her by the hand, little dead girl by the hand, and then the Bible does something very unusual that you don't see very often. Uh, there's things on the pulpit here that are flying everywhere. I hope it's not like the important announcement, like, oh, so-and-so received a scholarship today. Ah. <laughs> um, anyway, but here they are in, the, uh, in this intimate moment, and the, suddenly the Bible changes language. Like, what? Why, what is that about? Suddenly, he says to her, and you're, you're waiting, and suddenly, Talitha home. What, what is that about? Why, why in the world does it do that? The, whole, the rest of the Bible is translated into English. Why is suddenly there they don't do it? Well, there's a few places in the Bible, and you know this, most of you know this, there's a few times in the Bible where they, uh, the Bible is written, the New Testament is in Koine Greek, but they actually preserve, preserve the actual language of Jesus. So if you were to have been in the Sea of Galilee and heard Jesus did the Son of the Mount or whatever, he would have given it in Aramaic. That is the language of Jesus, you know, day-to-day language of Jesus. So at certain points in the Bible, they don't give it to us in the language of translation, which was for them for Greek, they give it to us in the original wording and language of Jesus. So it'd be as if you were there in the room and you actually were there with Jesus when he picked up the little girl's hand, you would have heard him say exactly what you hear here. Talitha Kaum, little girl, get up, arise. Okay, this happens a very few times in the New Testament. Remember the most famous one is on the cross where Jesus suddenly cries out, and, and they can't bear, they cannot bear to give it to you in translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They, don't, they, they get to that, but they won't first. You've got to hear it like you were at the foot of the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. It's a way of the, of the Bible drawing you into the intimacy of a moment so you won't think you're like watching television. 
and this is like something's happening over there and you're just watching it. No, no, they want you in the room. And the only way to get you in the room is to actually do what they rarely do, and that is to give it to you in the original language, the language of Jesus. The whole point is, is that by virtue of that, the, the Bible wants you in the room with Jesus today. He wants you there. And I believe there's two uh, calls to action, you might say, or two ways I think you should respond to this passage. Um, you know, we, let's just put, this is, a, this is your first few weeks of classes. How many, how many weeks have you been in classes? Three weeks, four weeks? Five. Five. <laughs> Five. Somebody's counting. Five weeks. Okay, so this is a really a good time to like, just say it publicly. I'm not part of the school here, so I can just say it. The pace here is crazy, isn't it? All right, you're going crazy. Let's just say it. You're going crazy. You know, you got here, you're all excited. Hey, I'm, I'm excited, you know, another year. Or maybe it's your first year, you're all excited, you know. You get the syllabus, you're like, what? You know, and then finally you get, okay, maybe I can do this. But you're on your week five. And, and the panic is starting to settle in. You know, some of you are in full-fledged panic. Some of you wonder, I can't wait till this, this sermon is over and get out of here. But let's just hold on a minute. Because do you know that when Jesus, his entire ministry, think about this. Jesus has been called to redeem the entire planet. His, you can imagine his mission, redeem the world. Okay, big high bar. Jesus never, ever runs anywhere. In fact, is Jesus, his whole ministry is walking. Walking is basically the pace of walking about three miles per hour. Jesus never exceeds three miles per hour. Think about it. He never gets on a plane. You know, Jesus redeems the entire world at three miles per hour. You will make it through this semester. You will survive it. I, I heard through rumor that other students ahead of you have made it. They do walk across the stage. They get diplomas. This thing does have a culmination point. You're going to make it. But the point is, along the way, you can rush your way through this whole, upper, whole system here, and you can miss the fact that God wants to touch your life and that he wants to redirect your life. And there's really two applications, and, and this is actually not like an either-or. For some of you, it's both. This is a both-and thing. On the one hand... Some of you are like in the position of Jairus or, or the woman, where you have a story, you have an issue, you have something where you need the touch of Jesus. And I want to tell you, Jesus is here to touch you. A lot of things will happen at Asbury that have nothing to do with what happens in your classroom. One of the great, and it'll happen there too, but the point is God has a lot for, in store for you, and he will walk with you. And many of you need to reach out today and touch the hem of his garment and say, Lord, help me in this area. I need the power of Jesus in this area of my life. But for many of you, you need, and, and I think about this, uh, I'm not really an expert by any means on this Game of Thrones, but it won an Emmy last night, right? Did you hear that? Oh, you're too busy studying. You don't know. But I did hear one stat about the Game of Thrones. I thought it was interesting. Did you know that they have a record that they, on average, 12 people were killed in every episode? <laughs> Can you imagine? That's a lot of people getting killed. 
you feel like you're in the middle of Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, some of you feel like, I'm not going to survive this. I'm going to get killed in this episode, my freshman year. Boom. <laughs> Asbury's your Game of Thrones, right? And you're going to be dethroned or voted off the island or whatever you want to say. You know, you, you're get, you get this, right? There's a sense where you feel, I'm going to die. You need to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. But I also think that many of you must, must surely recognize that, that we are God's mobile temple in the world. We, we are the embodiment of Christ's presence in the world. Many of you need to realize, and during these years at Asbury, God has a great mission for you to be his ambassadors, to go out and bring healing to a broken, hurting world. Amen? And, and that will be a thousand ways that happens in a room like this with the, all the wonderful majors you have here. But I'll tell you, you know, there's a place in India, I'll close with this story. There's a place in India, you may not have heard of it, it's called Taraswania. Now, Taraswania is a very, very sad place. I've been there many times. But Taraswania is a place, the closest way to describe this is a human dumping ground. It's in the state of Madhya Pradesh, in the kind of heart of north, north, north central India. And whenever they have like, you know, they do, uh, when they have delegates or, you know, people who come to India, they, like the, you know, prime minister of the countries or the president of the United States or whoever comes to India on these official visits or state visits or whatever, they don't want any them to see any problems, right? They want to clean up the streets. So they go through and they, they go through and sweep up people all the time. And this is before anything, any official visit, you know, or the, any kind of United Nations event or whatever it is. They'll sweep through the city, pick up prostitutes, drug addicts, put them in vans, drive them out and dump them in Teraswania. Get them off the streets. So a lot of people get dumped there. And it's a place of misery, a place of, of no hope, a place of, it's, it's a horrific place. So we decided, uh, I worked in a ministry in North India in my earlier years, and the people in that ministry, in fact, the man who led it, actually, just to show a connection with Asbury, his daughter is a graduate of Asbury University. He's an Indian leader, his name is Matthew Varghese, and his daughter, Elzaba, is a graduate of Asbury University some, a few years back. But he led this movement to go to Teraswania and to start schools there, uh, provide, um, I mean, unbelievable opportunities to people to turn their lives around. It was like Jesus, through this ministry, walked into Teraswania and said, come, touch the hem of our garment, be made whole. And these kids all get their little uniforms, you know, we started these schools, and I mean, it's unbelievable transformation that happened and opportunity. And this, and I've, I've been able to see this uh, villa, this place, over a period of 30 years. I've been going to India that long. So I've seen the whole thing unfold over many, many years, decades, and I've seen transformation. Now, many of you, you know, you can't save the world. You can get overwhelmed by the world's challenges. Let me tell you something. That God is using Christians to make a difference, and you'll have to find out what your part in that story is. But there's a story out there where you can make a difference. And I hope and pray that you, you know, kind of embody that missional sense about your life and that you don't look at the world and just say, oh, it's hopeless, it's full of despair. There are a lot of great things happening, and God is doing his work. God loves to walk in the midst of a broken world, and we have a broken world. And you are his hands and feet in the world. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
We thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord, that you are the God who walks in our midst. And may we not only this day reach out afresh and touch you and cling to you and hold to you in the midst of the storms that we may encounter, but may we also, Lord, be your missional ones sent out to the ends of the earth. May you use every student here for your glory. May no one here say of themselves, I'm a dry tree, I can't be used, I have no purpose, God has no plan for me. May that not be said of anyone in this room. May everyone here recognize that you have a place for them to be an instrument of healing in this broken world. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Amen.